From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. As large democracies become modern digital states, they'll get inspiration from their smallest allies. That is the premise for today's conversation. I'm Azim Azar. Welcome to the Exponentially podcast. AI is not only changing the way we live, it's forcing governments to reinvent themselves, to become digital natives. But how can large countries like the United States reform without becoming vulnerable to the digital downsides of cyber attacks and polarization? Estonia, a tiny ex-Soviet republic that successfully turned to the West, having joined NATO, the EU and the World Trade Organization, might just offer a guide. The country is voraciously digital. In 2005, it became the first to offer online voting. And despite suffering the world's first sovereign cyber attack two years later, trust in the government's digital infrastructure is so high that a majority of voters cast their ballots online in this year's election. So I went to the capital, Tallinn, to discuss the digital success story with Kaya Kallas, the recently re-elected prime minister at her official residence, Stenbock House. Prime Minister Kalas, thank you for being with me today. Thank you for inviting me into a wonderful place of, of work with so much history. Welcome to Stenbock House. Nice to have you here. Just a little over 30 years ago, you know, Estonia was under Soviet oppression and Estonia's own journey has been an exponential one in just three decades. I'm very curious to learn from you initially, how distant or close to those times of Soviet rule and rule from Moscow feel to you today? Well, they feel distant, uh, but at the same time, uh, not so distant. I mean, I was born under Soviet occupation. Uh, then we restored our independence. Uh, I was in university when we rebuilt our economy and, and all the legal system. And then, then I was already a lawyer. Uh, really right. using those laws and, and seeing this all develop over 30 years and the development uh, in our economy. I mean, our GDP has risen by 3.5 uh, times mm. uh, uh, over over these times and, and our salaries have risen uh, 45 times wow. uh, compared to uh, the beginning. So it has been a remarkable uh, journey, but we are a small country, which means that we have also a lot of possibilities to uh, use that size mm -hmm. into, you know, being so flexible uh, right. regarding uh, the opportunities that are coming. And of course, uh, when we restored our independence, we had to build everything from scratch uh, right. because so many things that the Soviet occupation normalized, for example, like corruption. And so we had to start from 
zero or even sub-zero. Right. Uh, and and therefore, going to digital was one of those uh, tools that we used. But it, it's interesting that you use the word Soviet occupation about the 50-year period that uh, Estonia was part of the uh, USSR because, of course, Estonia had been an independent country uh, before then. But it was quite a unique republic in, in the context of the USSR because of its proximity to the Nordics, because it's so close to Finland. It's a 20-minute plane ride. I guess you must have had access to Finnish media yeah. growing up as, as well in a way perhaps that other Soviet republics didn't, couldn't access. This is true, but we never uh, fit under that occupation. Right. So it is belonging to the Western world and, and uh, was also uh, why all the Russians wanted to uh, come to Estonia during that time. And, and you know, in the 1920s, our Russian population was about 3.2%. Uh, but as they deported Estonians and brought in Russians in the end of Soviet occupation, it was 30%. Of course, and your, your family was affected with the, the deportations. I think some yeah. members of your family were deported by Stalin. This is uh, not a unique story uh, in Estonia. I mean, every family has a story like this. Uh, uh, my family, my mother was only six months old baby uh, when she was deported to Siberia in a cattle wagon with my grandmother and great-grandmother um, while my uh, grandfather was sent to prison camp. So this yeah. is the sad history. It's a sad history, in fact. But act there might have been some resentment. And yet you manage to have a country that doesn't seem to have, even now, a lot of ethnic conflagration between these two groups. And I say even now, of course, because we're sitting more than a year into uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. How has the, the nation itself managed what, what could have been a, a, a cause for fracture? Mm. As we say here, we might have a different past with our Russian-speaking minority, but we have a common future. And our Russian-speaking minority, especially those who are living closer to Russia, they can see that life on the Russia side is so much worse than it is on the Estonian side. So they are clearly with us and they understand what is going on in uh, Ukraine. But why this is so clear to us is that uh, uh, what we are seeing in Ukraine unfolding is the same uh, atrocities that our grandparents uh, uh, went through. Yes. And that is why it is so black and white, and we want to avoid those uh, for anybody else. But on the positive side, I must say that uh, when we celebrated our 30th anniversary of uh, restoring our independence, mm -hmm. then uh, I, as a prime minister, asked the uh, young people to write me essays about those uh, times when we restored our independence. And that, while I was reading those essays, what struck me was that our young people nowadays are exactly the same as the German or the French young people because right. they take freedom for granted. And for me, I mean, I'm of the lucky generation that didn't have freedom and has the freedom now, so I'm not taking this for granted. Yeah. There's something in the, the word, the phrasing you use there, though. You're, you're in the lucky generation who uh, didn't it's, take freedom yes. for granted. Because it's vice versa. Right, I course. mean, I was born under Soviet occupation, we didn't have anything. We didn't have candies in the shops. We didn't have any choice. And now we have, uh, we have all and, that. Right. But why I was saying that I was happy to read their essays to understand that 
we have done something right because they don't have the fears that uh, my generation has who remembers that it can all fall apart again. I suppose maybe it's a it's an unvarnished opinion from me but I picture Estonia and Estonian society as more resilient than my experience of the UK or the the US is. And I, and I wonder whether I build that picture because of your proximity to Russia, because in 2007, you were the first country to suffer a, a sovereign cyber attack. Uh, you're largely believed to have emanated from Moscow. It is clear that, uh, that we were attacked in 2007 and uh, we after that, concentrated on, re- I mean, building our resilience uh, and but the foundation. But it was a cyber attack, right? So it, it was wasn't a cyber a attack. Yes, attack yes, per se, it was a was cyber, cyber attack. attack. But but this is also uh, during this war. Uh, we see the conventional war in Ukraine, but there's also a hybrid war, an information war, a cyber war going on, energy war going right. on. In 2007, we established this computer. Uh, emergency rescue team mm-hmm. uh, that uh, is also helping uh, not only the government but also the companies because it is about the weakest link. We are so connected, uh, everybody. Um, so even you know hospitals. A few years ago, they only had to worry about some drug addict coming and right. stealing the morphine. Now they are a security risk because if they are cyber attacked. Uh, you know, there could be civilian casualties. Absolutely. And, and that's why the NATO Center of Excellency regarding the cybersecurity was uh, established in Estonia. And, and we are sharing the experience and trying to build or help uh, build the resilience in other societies as well. There is this point about the integration of uh, public and private sector in developing a sense of resilience because the mm-hmm. kinetic attack yeah. You do depend on your air force or your army yeah, yeah. to respond. In the cyber attack, it can come in through the bank or mm-hmm. the primary school yeah. or someone's insurance company, uh, and mm-hmm. and then it can reach national mm-hmm. infrastructure straight after. Yeah, what I always tell regarding the cybersecurity is that when companies are cyber attacked, uh, they feel ashamed. You know mm-hmm. that uh, we let our guard down and right. we didn't. I mean, and it went through and we paid ransom or 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 something like that. And they don't talk about this, but the good guys should share information because the bad guys do share information. Right. So in order to prepare uh, for future cyber attacks, we have to share this information if something happens, because then others can build on that experience and uh, build their resilience on it. Uh, And and this is extremely, extremely important. That's super interesting. If a firm believes that being cyber attacked is a bad thing. They will really do the minimal reporting they need, exactly, which then makes the next cyber attack more more likely. And more likely, and and uh, other companies more vulnerable. And why we have this uh, computer emergency uh, rescue team is now also helping the companies to find their vulnerable uh, right. places. It's not anymore that you know the security of a country only depends on government. It's it's also the private companies. And I think what is also maybe uh, different here is that 
Are people trust uh, government and government services regarding uh, digital mm. um, issues, whereas uh, uh, maybe not so much the private companies? Right. Uh, whereas in some other co uh, countries, it's more like people give away a lot to the private, private companies and there's like, oh, I'm not giving it to the state. But I think um, what is important that I've always stressed is, uh, is the digital identities. I mean, in the real world, country issues a passport. You right. are who right. you say you are. Absolutely. Uh, in the online world. Uh, On the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Exactly, famous, exactly. It's famous my famous, point, yeah. famous cartoon. It's <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. Uh, well, and the digital identity solved that issue. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Estonia is also so well known, though, for its private sector and its entrepreneurialism uh, in the digital space. In fact, the first time I came to Estonia more than 20 years ago, it was to come and look at some private companies. And I, I saw um, a company called Privador uh, out of the University of Tartu. It's now known as Guards Time, mm -hmm. which is quite a successful uh, security and encryption mm -hmm. uh, company. And of course, you uh, had the tremendous success with Skype and Skype gave birth to a, a new ecosystem mm -hmm. and uh, companies like TransferWise known as Wise and Bolt and Pipedrive and Pactum and Starship, which makes little robots that deliver, deliver food. I host every year the student companies. And what is interesting about this is that our market is so small that all the students think about the global problems that they want to solve. Right. And that's why we have uh, most startups per capita and, and a lot of uh, good ideas. That well, most startups per capita, I think amongst the highest venture capital per, per capita, so the, the funds that are required to get these startups going. But I was curious about why do you think Estonia has that special source? Is it about uh, strong technical education? Is it about having to rebuild an economy because the, the Soviet Union hadn't left a robust economy here? First, in the Soviet Union, you didn't have any private property. So you didn't have any market economy. Right. So when you haven't had those opportunities, you are so willing to use those opportunities that unfold. Yeah. Uh, so that is the first thing. The second thing is the education, definitely. So trying to focus on STEM subjects and the most popular cartoon in Estonia is a cartoon of a, a girl dog who is an inventor. Right. And, and all the, you know, the songs are about, you know, math is great, chemistry is interesting, you know, oh, physics I is... Yeah. I would have loved this cartoon when yeah, I was Yeah, up. yeah, yeah. So I, I can send it to you. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are My books. Estonian uh, is not so good. But no, yeah. no, it's, it's in English right. as well. So. Yeah. so, you know, they do all these lists. And, and apparently in terms of uh, fee, uh, female uh, entrepreneurs or inventors, we are 
um, in the top of the world. I was like, right. okay, this cartoon is really it's driving it. Yeah. yeah, driving it. Can I unpick something you, you said earlier? You said we had no market economy, and that very hard for many of us to to understand. What what does that mean? The civil code of of Estonia was really really. Uh, small because right. it didn't have a lot of paragraphs because you didn't have any property to... to so you didn't need any laws to, to explain them, right? And you yeah. didn't really have all those uh, uh, agreements and everything had to be built from scratch. So the ones who were writing the laws, uh, picking up all the good examples around the world were the law students uh, because they spoke languages. Right. And, and so first thing we understood uh, back then was that what makes investors trust your country is the uh, rule of law. So building the laws and the legal system uh, was very important in order to attract investments and also keeping that uh, and getting rid of uh, corruption. And you must have just missed the opportunity to be one of the students to work on these laws. No, actually, I was in a university and right. I, start in a, I started in a law firm when I was 18 and uh, giving advice <laughs> because the clients were young, right. the market was young, right. the laws were young, a lot of things were forgiven. And yeah. I think this mentality has remained, you know, the startup mentality that also for the government, uh, so that is okay uh, to fail because you learn something on the way and you can, you know, rebuild on that uh, uh, something yeah. new. If I sum up what this, this journey looks like, um, there is a, a sense of, of nationhood that delivers uh, a national resilience. And that resilience comes from having not had freedom, perhaps, and then having freedom and understanding its value, uh, living next to a threat, which leads to also to the development of the framework for opportunity, right? You, you build these new laws, these institutions that enable a democratic and market economy connected to a strong education system that had a focus on STEM. And, and then perhaps a, a little bit of good fortune that this happens around the time the digital revolution is taking place. Mm -hmm. We introduced uh, digital identities already in 2000 when, right. uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> many didn't have internet <laughs> yet. That is also the leadership from the government side uh, because people didn't know that they need digital right. identities. But, but building the framework and, and starting to build the C governance and also the data that uh, uh, you, you get from this and, and making it open uh, to the, the companies and, and using that. Uh, I think was one of the fundamentals. Being a small nation, uh, by being digital, you can be much bigger. Uh, we have the e-residence program yeah. uh, and and we are having all the services that, that we can the, use. The e-residency program is so clever. It allows someone who's not uh, an Estonian citizen to get an e-residency in Estonia, so they can start to build a business that can work in the digital marketplace, but have the benefits of you know, Estonia's relationships within the EU and Estonia's mm. legal system, even if they don't necessarily come physically, physically <laughs> come. Here. What's that actually done for, 
for Estonia. So that means uh, the tax uh, money eventually, and it also means that you have a lot of friends around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Brexit happened, we had a lot of uh, e-residents oh, coming. Many of my friends. From, from yeah. UK. <laughs> yes, that's it's right. like, okay, how can we still enjoy uh, the the um, uh, European Union uh, and everything uh, that is uh, related to it? I think what we have understood since 2000s is that people are more and more living their lives online. Right. So the government also has to be there with the services. Otherwise, the people just alienate from the state because I can do everything online. The only uh, establishment or institution that I can't uh, deal with is my government. And, uh, and I think uh, the government should be where the people are. Right. Uh, but that requires the identities and we could solve so many issues with this. And, and so we have this interesting picture that builds up, which is that there's this vibrant private sector and billions of people have used uh, Estonian companies' products and do, do every, every day. But underneath that is this digital government infrastructure that it, in a way is enabling all of this. And there is online voting in Estonia. And I think in your recent elections, a majority of votes were cast by people on their computers or on their mm -hmm. smartphones. It's not that clear uh, that it will increase the voters, but the young people definitely uh, vote online. Right. And we have more and more people going from the regular voting to online voting because it's so convenient. There's something else though that I found really fascinating, which is, as a government, you're only allowed to ask a citizen once for their information. And so every department has to use the information the government already has. Whereas if you're in the United States or in the UK and you're trying to do something with a different government department, mm. you're in there typing in the same information time and time again. Now, what is that? Is that a cultural trope? Is that a design decision? Was there some, somebody who thought this is really important for us to get a you know, legitimacy. It's all about customer experience, really. Right. I mean, we don't use the plastics for the uh, uh, your driver's license anymore. Right. So you don't know when it's going to expire, really, because you don't really use it. So my state uh, writes me an email, uh, your driver's license is expiring. You have two choices, either to go to an office, costs you more, or to do it online. Uh, you have to get your uh, doctor's approval that you can still drive a car and is this uh, still your signature we have this is still your address is that the picture we can use we have mm. that picture of you yes check 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 it's, it's done and now we are trying to do uh, like more of this personalized event-based uh, uh, services so that for example your kid is born so the government says that okay you can register here you can do this you have to do this and so right. you don't have to think that what else do I have to do? Because you're the first time parent and you don't really know. You don't have a lot of headspace, yeah. to be honest, when you're <laughs> that the first is time true. parent either. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. But technology is changing exponentially. And we, in the last you know, five, ten years, have seen this incredible transformation through artificial intelligence and many, many new risks emerging from it. So what do you do as a forward-looking government in terms of addressing the, the, the risks of AI? We can't pretend that this uh, is not coming. Uh, so we are ignoring this. Uh, uh, no, we don't do that. But at the same time, we are very cautious of over-regulating because if you start to regulate in a very early phase, then you focus on the 
incumbents because this is what you know and oh okay this way it operates but every time you focus on the incumbent you actually make the rules that are made for the incumbent and not for everybody else so so the balance question is about how to not kill innovation Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time addressing the risks that there are Um, i think that very often uh, on the Do you Europe- think the EU has got this exactly, right with AI? Uh, exactly, that I wanted to uh, point yeah. out that European Union is focusing, trying to get all the risks. And I think uh, that is not finding and striking the right balance right. Uh, regarding this. I think it needs more of um, still this uh, startup mentality that, of course, a cooperation with uh, companies that are working on the AI, but also going to find this balance in between so that you don't uh, kill the innovation on the way. Uh, and it is difficult, I, I, I must say. And, uh, in our government, we try to find ways we can use the AI and we have over 100 user cases already where we use that. The premise of our conversation was that as we move into these exponential times of radically changing technologies, that legitimacy, resilience and engagement will be critical capabilities for governments and that digital capabilities are the ones that will allow that to happen. Um, To what extent do you think that these are lessons that can be learned and should be learned by other countries in particular larger countries? There are many lessons on the way. And I I always say that when we have tested something, you know, it's like a beta version before you go online. Uh, in a bigger scale, we have tested right. this. Right, so Estonia is yes. the beta test market. Yes, yeah. exactly. So we have tested that and these are the bugs. So we have uh, tried to uh, show other countries uh, what is our experience regarding this. But uh, I think we have to cooperate. And I see that uh, there is a difference of mindset. I mean, I bring you one example. We had a debate on the European level and the representative of one country uh, said to something that we were doing is like, oh my God, you're doing this and this is the most sensitive data there is. And I replied that it's also the data that helps the people the most. So it depends how you see it. Do you only see the risks or you also see the opportunities that there are? And of course, you can't overlook the risks. I'm not proposing that, but you have to see the opportunities. Again, if the private companies are driving this, uh, then the governments are left behind. And if the tools are there, you can't, you know, out-regulate them because th- they are already there. It's like the Industrial Revolution, you know. You can't say that you can't use the uh, mm-hmm. shoeing machine when right. it has been invented. Right. You have to think about what comes with it. Kaya Callas, it's a very fine balance that you have struck. Thank you so much for sharing with me today. Thank you. Reflecting on my conversation with the Prime Minister, I'm struck by a few things. She really gets digital. She understands what government apps should look like and what citizens need from them. But she also raised the importance of values, the values of public-private cooperation, the values of alliances, and the values of protecting democracy. Perhaps because the memory of oppression is still so recent in Estonian memory. But I think these are all great lessons for bigger countries as well. 
thanks for listening to the Exponentially podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or rating. It really does help others find us. The Exponentially podcast is presented by me, Azim Azar. The sound designer is Will Horrocks. The research was led by Chloe Ipper and music composed by Emily Green and John Zarconi. The show is produced by Frederick Casella, Maria Gavrilov and me, Azim Azar. Special thanks to Indrek Casella, Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott and Magnus Henriksen. The executive producers are Andrew Barden, Adam Kamiski, and Kyle Kramer. David Ravella is the managing editor. Exponentially was created by Frederick Casella and is an E to the Pi I plus one limited production in association with Bloomberg LLC. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.